Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fifth episode of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, Sai Alba and Dave Schaffer will cover preparing for and doing transactions as a government contractor. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. You know, welcome to this latest edition of our podcast on commercial businesses new to government contracting. I'm Cy Alba, and I'm here with my partner, Dave Schaefer, today. And we're going to be talking about preparing for and executing transactions with government contractors. It's definitely a different scenario when you're acquiring a federal contractor or acquiring assets that have federal contracts as part of them, because there's a whole bunch of other rules that you need to to deal with and worry about through the diligence process and performance of the contracts, even notifications post-closing, a whole bunch of things like that that we're going to go through and get into. Now, first, though, if you guys are here and you're already listening to, to this session of the podcast, you're probably already looking out there interested in acquiring or becoming a part of a federal contractor. And you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? The government's generally a reliable payer. The federal contracting market tends to be relatively recession resistant. Uh, it's used as a hedge in a lot of cases so that companies can hedge off against market downturns or things in the commercial marketplace. And I think right now, given where we are, it's certainly possible. And there's been hints of a recession maybe coming in, in the future and they, they're cyclical comes and goes. And so I think a lot of companies are looking to potentially buy in or a lot of investors through various funds might be trying to buy into the federal marketplace. But one thing to remember, you noted, is that it, it's, it's highly regulated. And so there's a lot of issues that you need to, to think about as you go through this entire process. And so when you're thinking about issues and, and risks and hedging against risks in a highly regulated environment, I'm sure if you've done deals before, you're thinking about due, due diligence. What are the key issues that I have to worry about? What are the things that come up all the time? So I don't know, Dave, do you want to kind of kick us off? What things have you seen? What kind of major issues have you seen in the, the due diligence arena that's specific and special when it comes to federal contracts? Yeah, absolutely, Sai. Thank you very much. I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting when taking a look at a target company that you want to acquire that does business with the federal government, it really does come down to that compliance with the regulatory requirements, with the statutes, with the terms of the contract. And there are certain requirements that are implied and placed upon a company separate and apart from those that you're going to find within the contract, which is a little bit more different, which is different than, say, a commercial setting where all of the terms for compliance are set forth in the four corners of the document. In government contracting, there are certain regulations that we speak on that really are incorporated into every contract by operation of law. So there are additional things that you really need to consider that may not appear evident on the face of the contracts. So certain things that come up 
is, you know, the False Claims Act. And the False Claims Act really comes into effect in large part when looking at diligence in that government contractors have to make reps and certs or representations and certifications to the federal government, to other parties, that they are, they meet certain criteria, they have certain status, um, whether that's a set-aside status. And, and by set-aside status, I mean that they have some sort of significant and special characteristic that the government has set aside revenue and contract uh, allotted for, as an example, a woman-owned small business, a small business, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business, hub zone, 8A. Those are some government regulatory programs that come into play. That when they make a certification or a representation that they have achieved or have um, been certified as having one of those statuses, that that's actually true, accurate, and complete. And if not, the False Claims Act, which does have a rather lengthy statute of limitations, can come into play. So that's certainly something that when you're evaluating target and understanding liability exposure for that company, that's one of the things that you really want to wrap your arms around that you're not going to see in a commercial transactional setting. You also see things like organizational conflicts of interest, where government contractors oftentimes may have a conflict with another government contractor, and by acquiring the other, you would have an OCI issue, an organizational conflict issue that would preclude maximizing the value post-closing of that target company you just spent all that money for. I think one of the more interesting things as well is intellectual property, particularly in this market, in a lot of commercial transactions, when you look at a target company, you say the intellectual property is the main value driver associated with why you want to acquire this company. Maybe you can take that IP and put it on your platform or whatever the case may be. But intellectual property for a government contractor has a little bit more nuance and you have to do significantly more due diligence into the data rights that are associated with that intellectual property, who developed it, what revenue was used to develop it, and what rights does the government have either through that contract or through just regular regulatory and statutory rights that are afforded to the government in the government contracting setting. So that's certainly something that you want to really key in on because IP does tend to be a real value driver for a lot of the target companies and the ability to license it out, to sell it, to dispose of it, and to gain full and exclusive rights to it is a significant component to protecting yourself as an acquirer. Yeah, so I think that generally speaking in this market, a lot of commercial companies, when you're looking to acquire another entity, whether it's commercial or a government contractor, one of the main value drivers associated with that target is the intellectual property that's contained in that. And whether it's intrinsic to the company or whether it is something that the company has used to leverage and, and derive significant revenue, that IP being a significant value driver is something that you want to actually understand a little bit more because there's some government contracting nuances given the government's potential rights to that IP or certain other limitations associated with the ability to sell, license, dispose of that IP that you really want to be aware of to maximize your value. Sai, I know you work a lot with data rights in the government contracting sense, and I'd be interested in you know your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so I think one of the main things when you talk about data rights vis-a-vis -vis federal contractors and federal government is the idea that 
the government is never supposed to take ownership over intellectual property, even when they pay for the development of it, which at first blush, and that's sort of the general rule. It's not true all the time, but that's the general rule. So at first blush, you might be looking at that and saying, this is great. So wait, the government's going to pay for me to develop this amazing thing. And then I own the intellectual property and I can go do whatever I want with it. Generally, yes, it does sound like a good thing. However, a lot of federal contractors, because of the highly regulated environment, tend to just do federal contracting and don't have a major commercial market for some of the things that they develop. And that's what's tricky. Because if the government pays for something, and let's assume there's differences between commercial software and non-commercial software and how you pay for it, what things of that nature. But generally, if the government pays for something, they don't own it, but they get unlimited rights to it. So that essentially means if there's some new thing that's developed and you don't do side development or add to it, turn it into a different product at private expense that the government has no hand in, if you don't do that, if you just have this one thing that they paid for, the government already has unlimited rights to it. So you can't stop the government from getting someone else, hiring a different contractor to change it or add to it or do something with it. The government can take source code from some piece of software that they paid for, and they can publish it uncompiled in its standard source code form to the whole world and say, hey, I need a new RFP, a new request for proposals. I want someone to figure out how to make this better. Here's the things I want. Here's the source code. You can download it and look at it and, and let me know what you think. What that doesn't do is it doesn't let the companies that have access to it or the companies the government hires to either fix or if it's if it's um, some plans for a physical item that can be manufactured, they can hire a third party to do the manufacturing instead of you. All of those things are possible. What it doesn't do is let those companies that get access to this information or source code to go commercialize it, to sell it in the open market, because you still own it. If, even if the government paid for it, and generally again. And so you can go out and commercialize it if there's a commercial market. But the other thing you can't do is take this product or this software, whatever it happens to be, this intellectual property, and sell it sort of as is back to the federal government because they already have unlimited rights in it. So there's nothing that you can sell them that they don't already have rights to for free. And that's the tricky thing. If you're a federal contractor, if you're buying into the federal contracting market and the person you're looking at, the company you're buying, is really a true federal contractor through and through, and that's their main customer base. Let's say it's some amazing intellectual property that's going to, or some software that's going to do something great to help agencies in their particular mission or dealing with like ammunition and something like that, something that's very specific to the federal government or like nuclear missiles or something. There is no commercial market for that, right? That you're allowed to tap into at least. And so the main customer you have is the federal government. And by not securing the rights or not creating something at private expense, you really can't sell that back to the government without going through a bunch of other things later, like commercial development at your own private R&D funds and pouring extra money in to make something special, something you've added on top of it that you might then be able to sell back to the government customer. 
But if there's something that's truly unique that you think you can truly commercialize, put in the commercial market, not sell back to the federal government, then that, this can be a great opportunity. That's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, being able to leverage the assets of the target company that you're acquiring is obviously, you know, I, I think a material component to why you're doing a transaction, how you're helping to build your company and the profitability and revenue streams associated with your company and making sure that you've got the ability to actually derive revenue in a manner that your financial projections or the target company's, you know, pro forma is dictating is certainly something that you want to understand in the due diligence process early on before you, you know, spend more time and resources pursuing a transaction that may ultimately not bear fruit. So I think that's really one of the most material things in this market right now. As a lot of the companies value, a lot of target companies value is driven by intellectual property. Jumping back to just diligence issues that are unique to government contracting companies, targets that participate in the federal government contracting space is this issue of small business designations and set aside contracts and the target company may have some sort of small business or other socioeconomic set-aside contracts. And those are federal contracts that are set aside to in, uh, spur growth in certain historically underutilized demographics. So women-owned small business, service-disabled veteran-owned small business, 8A, hub zone. And there's a handful of other set-aside designations. And the interesting thing about that is that those contracts are awarded to those companies, but it is dependent upon their continued status of being a small business or other type of socioeconomic set-aside consider concern. So when you buy the company, if you buy the equity of the company, will that change? If you buy the assets of the company, are you similarly situated? And do you have the requisite certifications to be able to perform on those contracts? And I think similar to intellectual property rights, and once you buy the IP, do you have the ability to leverage it? If you buy the contracts, you need to make sure that you have the ability to continue to perform on those contracts. And those contracts don't come at risk of termination. And we're not going to get too deep into some of the nuances associated with termination rights or uh, the government taking credit and, and how we can help kind of work through these set-aside concepts, but understand that the contracts themselves do have a tie in many instances to the status of the target company itself that may change as a result of some sort of material transaction. So we think about that and we think about changes of ownership, changes of name, changes of tax status, changes of location, and all of these self-certifications that are made through the reps and certs that, again, we have this False Claims Act liability, and we have a lot of regulatory overlay in the due diligence of the target company itself. And so that's something that you want to really understand whether you will be able to step into the shoes of the target company and perform in a manner substantially similar to that target company. Another issue for due diligence is facility security clearances or FCL. Actually, Dave, Dave, can I can I talk about that one thing really quickly? The, the small business 
So another thing to, just to note when it comes to small businesses is and the FCA risk. And this isn't to scare people off. It's more about doing your due diligence on these companies. Is the FCA risk for small business certifications and failing to perform appropriately under the law when you're a small business is more severe than other False Claim Act liability issues. So if you falsely certify, and it can be reckless disregard for the truth or knowingly, if you certify or this company you're buying certified, and that can also include performing things incorrectly. So if you're not following the rules of performance, um, say you're a subcontractor, you put one of these small businesses or one of these socially and economically disadvantaged small businesses, they're the prime contractor. The guy you're buying is the sub because they don't qualify, but they're sort of really managing the contract behind the scenes. That kind of stuff can put the company that's performing that, that work and the subcontractors and everyone who's involved at risk for false certifications, which can equate to three times the value of the, the gross value of the contract. So I've seen transactions where we've been asked to take a look on behalf of the seller and they say, hey, look, we're going to go to market. We're worth, we think we're worth 23 million bucks or 40 million bucks or whatever. And I look at the contracts and how they're performing them. And it doesn't look like they're performing them correctly and that they could be running the contract inappropriate. And if a buyer were to come in and do that the due diligence, the buyer would likely, if their counsel knew what they were doing, would likely look at this and say, hey, you're buying this company, you're going to pay 25, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million, whatever it is, and they have $100 million worth of contracts that they've won in the past six years. They've performed them all the same way, and that wasn't correct. So you're buying something for $50 million that could have a potential liability of $300 million. It's just something to really think about when you're dealing with this, because there's six-year, potentially even 10-year statute of limitations on these things. And there's no way to retroactively fix these things. So when you're buying into a company like that, you really need to be careful with this particular issue uh, of small business status and, and performing work. Retro Going back in the past to make sure you're not buying your major liability, but also, as Dave said, in the future, making sure you can still qualify and still do this work without contracts being automatically turned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the broader transactional and M&A setting, risk allocation and understanding the potential liabilities that you're acquiring is significant in any transaction. And I think it's more so in a government contracting transaction because the statute of limitations are so long, because it follows in many respects the contract and not necessarily the entity. And because the ability for an adverse finding to impact not only the contract at issue, but potentially all of your other contracts and your ability to participate in the federal government marketplace at large, it's such a significant issue that you want to spend time understanding your risk profile, allocating risk appropriately, and confirming that you're comfortable with the potential risk that you are taking. And so in a lot of ways, the due diligence aspect for a, a government contracting target company in an M&A setting tends to focus far more on this one issue, these issues that relate to the performance than even, say, tax or ERISA or other kind of standard high-level 
reps and warranties that are ultimately given in a purchase agreement. I think next, one of the things, and this goes back to being able to perform on the contract, are these facility security clearances or FCLs. So to the extent that the target company has a cleared contract that necessitates the entity itself having a security clearance, you need to understand what steps you need to take to make sure that you are able to maintain that facility security clearance, either at the target company or obtain your own facility security clearance. And a facility security clearance is going to be tied in large respect to the personal security clearance of some of the key management personnel, the KMPs, and making sure that the KMPs are authorized and empowered to control the operations of the business, particularly as it relates to the clear contract itself. So there's the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, DCSA, who administers the FCLs that you have to process a change conditions packet and have to inform them about any sort of material change to the target company, whether that's a change in ownership, a change in name, a change in KMP. Those types of things need to be run with them. There's also a lot of guidance provided in the National Industry Security Program Operating Manual, the NISPOM, that ultimately provides some of that guidance on exactly how this works. But you want to make sure that the key management personnel are going to be maintained, at least in the transitionary period after acquiring a company, so that the FCL maintains its integrity, you keep in place until you've developed a plan to transition it or to get a different FCL with your with your company, with a parent entity, move contracts around. There's a lot of strategic things that you can do. However, you have to start from a baseline of preservation of the FCL and notification of a change with DCSA. And those are certain things that, again, you're not going to find in a commercial M&A setting. Yeah, and it's pretty similar to just to note if you're doing work with DOE or you're trying to buy into someone who's doing work with the Department of Energy, NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Agency, they handle the kind of Q clearance issues, which is a specific clearance for DOE. And so the, the rules that Dave just went through for DCSA is very similar for NNSA if you're doing with, with DOE. So just realize it's not that different. With different systems, different people, different agencies, but sort of the rules and the rules of the road are, are very similar. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, conceptually, it all makes sense. The sensitivity associated with the contracts is something that regardless of agency, they want to make sure is maintained. And this, everybody has a process and you need to understand what that process is and make sure that you remain in compliance. And I think the compliance piece is something that is another overlay to an M&A transaction in the government contracting space is that there are compliance requirements in almost every aspect of the company. And if you don't operate in that space frequently, you may miss one. And that's one of the things that we see all the time is these, these compliance triggers come up in M&A transactions pretty regularly, and we can help navigate through that process. So one of the biggest ones, and I think the biggest due diligence item that you can really dig into both as you analyze the target company and its historical operations, going back to its reps and certs and small business set aside status, but also as you think about integration of the target company, its employees, its assets into your company, into your greater portfolio or into your platform, 
is this concept of affiliation and understanding how the Small Business Administration, the federal government at large, affiliates companies for the purpose of determining whether you qualify for certain programs. And that, again, both has the target company historically complied and have they you know, counted correctly in done their own affiliation determinations. And post-closing, how does this impact you and the target company's contracts if you were to aggregate revenues or aggregate employees for certain size standards? And that affiliation concept really spreads across the entire spectrum of an M&A transaction from LOI through closing. So, Sai, I know that you deal a lot with affiliation analysis, so I was hoping you could touch on some high points here. Yeah, and this this certainly comes into play, especially if you're talking about groups of, of entities or whenever you're trying to buy in to a concern that might be a small business and you're thinking to yourself in the commercial world, well, I'm just going to buy in. I'm going to buy in at, at 49% or something. I'm not going to control this, this company. And hey, I've got this uh, either a fund or private equity fund or something to that effect where we've got a bunch of interest, but we don't control any of the companies. And you just, well, I hear that all the time. Like we don't control any of them. We have a minority interest in all of them. So don't, you don't have to worry about affiliation. That's not true. You, you could have a 1% interest or frankly, you could have a 0% interest in, in a company and still be considered affiliated with them because of what they call negative control, which is the type of control where you have veto power over particular decisions inside the company that are based off of SBA regulations or case law. And so not everything is sitting in a regulation where you can say, well, show, show me the rule. What, what does the rule actually say? A lot of these SBA, these affiliation considerations are based on a totality of the circumstances test, which is just as vague and amorphous as it sounds. It's almost like a, a smell test, kind of a gut test. If SBA looks at this scenario, would they think that someone has control or negative control over a company based upon what's actually going on? So when you're looking at something like that and you say, well, I, I own a bunch of companies and I control these two, but none of the other ones, you don't need to worry about it. That's not true. You're going to have to look at the corporate documents for all these companies to say, okay, do I have negative control? Does the person who controls company A have negative control over B, C, and D? And if we're going to buy company X that's a government contractor, and we're going to maintain small business eligibility, X could be teeny tiny. You could have a size limit on this particular size standard for to qualify a small business status of like $40 million as an average over five years for that company. And that company might only be doing a million dollars a year. So they're absolutely small by themselves. But you need to look at whether or not you would be affiliated once you do this acquisition based upon the rules in SBA, which are the things like, are you a family member? Uh, you're automatically affiliated with companies owned by other family members. And then you have to rebut that presumption. Does the company you're acquiring get 70% or more of its revenue from another third-party source? They're affiliated with that. Is there common ownership, common management with any other companies? There could be affiliation there. There could be negative control if 
you're controlling the hiring and firing of employees, or in certain cases from 8A in particular, if you're buying an 8A company that's socially and economically disadvantaged small business, when you buy in, are you wanting to have some sort of committee that you control so that the prior owner who's going to stay on can't vote and pay themselves more? That would be negative control. That's not allowed. That would create affiliation. So there's a whole host of different issues that you need to look at when you're analyzing affiliation. And unfortunately, it's not as simple as saying, well, I have less than 50% ownership, therefore I'm not in control, which is what we hear a lot of times from commercial businesses. Also, a lot of the sort of negative covenants or investor protections that you see and you probably often want to put into these sorts of deals, a number of those can be problematic and can cause affiliation. And it doesn't just stop with if you have a fund and the fund has company A that's going to be the special purpose vehicle, it's going to go out and buy some entities, and you have target company X. It's not just company A and company X you have to worry about. Do the people who control the fund have positive or negative control over any other things, prior investments, things that you might not even be thinking about? Do the people who control the fund have family members who control positively or negatively other companies? And so it creates this web of potential affiliation that just needs to be walked through. And it's not something that can't be fixed or can't be avoided in most cases. It's more that we as advisors or whoever you're using as the lawyers to set up these sorts of scenarios, they need to be aware of all the facts. and. If you don't let make them aware of all the facts or allow them to look into the details of the various items, you're putting yourself at pretty significant risk because the FCA issues come back into play. And if you're affiliated and you don't check it and the company you're buying into or that you acquired continues to bid as a small business or any of these other special statuses without thinking about the affiliation issues, you can be exposing yourself to that 3x liability for all these contracts that you've won. This, again, the small business and the affiliation issues are some of the most important issues because the potential liability is so large and it's automatic. There's something called the presumed loss rule. The presumed loss of the government is three times the gross value of every contract that you miscertified or falsely certified to. And by merely bidding on a small business contract, you're deemed to have certified. That's called the deem certification. You've deemed to have certified that you qualify. So those two things combined means that for small business contracts in particular, there can be pretty severe li liability over and above standard false claims act, which usually the government has to prove losses and they have to prove that you knowingly or willfully did something in order to really get the highest level of damages, where when you're talking about small business, that's just not, not the, the case. It's, it's presumed. So again, serious issues, issues there, and you want to worry about it. Another thing just to point out is when you're talking about small business status, it's based on revenues or employees. If you do manufacturing and things of that nature, it's usually an employee-based size standard. Manufacturing is the big one, and then also environmental remediation is another. And that's based on your employees based over the past of two, two years, your average employees of any pay period over the past two years. What number is that? 
And there'll be different types of contracts at different size standards. So it's a per contract question, not, this is another thing we get all the time. Is this business a small business? Generically, I can't tell you. What contract are you bidding on? Because every contract is going to have a different NAICS code, North American Industry Classification Code, that's put on top of it that will dictate what the size standard is for that contract. So you might have a company that does manufacturing and also does like IT services. On one contract, the size standard might be 750 employees as a two-year average. On another contract, you might have a revenue-based size standard of 40 million, which means they have to be under 40 million in total gross revenues over a five-year period. They might qualify as small under one, but not under the other. And it's on a contract-by-contract basis is when you have to look at this. Additionally, affiliation can come and go. So if you are dealing with something where your husband, wife, brother, whatever, let's use that example, creates a company and you're working together, you're going to be affiliated of the familial identity of interest if your family member controls one or negative positively or negatively, and you control the other. There's going to be a presumption of affiliation. Well, what if the family member sells or you cease all business, you clearly fracture that business relationship with the family member, that affiliation goes away. So it could be here today and gone tomorrow, and then potentially it can show up again the next day. And you need to think through all of these issues. And it's not something that's easy to articulate. If you said, well, give me a list of everything I need to worry about. That's, again, not possible because of this totality of the circumstances test. So we kind of need to analyze everything on a case-by-case basis. And that's critical to pre-diligence if you're buying. And then also thinking about the future. What do you plan to do with this company? What do, you, what do the other people, family members, other people that you're related to when you're doing work? All of these things. What, is, what are the plans post-acquisition that we might need to think about to make sure you can actually maximize this value? So it's, it's critical to think about it from a 360 perspective. Yeah, thank you. And so due diligence, and we spend a lot of time talking about due diligence because not only are the downside risks so material, it's also a case where in a commercial transaction, we typically see a lot of asset purchase agreements where you have the ability to acquire assets but exclude certain liabilities associated with the target company. But in the government contracting space, because of the Anti-Assignment Act, which is a federal law that prohibits a target company from selling government contracts unless going through the regulatory process, referred to as a novation, we tend to see a substantially larger proportionally amount of equity transactions as opposed to asset transactions in order to avoid that rather burdensome regulatory innovation process. So because of that, you aren't afforded the same opportunity and ability to exclude liabilities that you may otherwise do in a more commercial setting through an asset purchase agreement. So because it's an equity purchase agreement, stock or membership interest, you have to understand your liabilities even more because you will be assuming them in connection with a transaction. You will be buying the entire entity. And therefore, you have to really understand what it is that you're buying, the good and the bad, and allocate risk appropriately. And so circling back to that novation concept, in an asset transaction, where you buy substantially all of the assets of a target company 
For the federal prime contracts, it must be go through the novation process, which entails communicating with the government contracting officer to assign those contracts from the target to your entity. And there's a very lengthy process associated with this. And it's a little bit backwards in the sense that you have to close your asset transaction before submitting the novation and requesting the government's approval and to recognize you as a successor in interest to that particular contract and entering into a novation agreement with the government, providing balance sheets, legal opinions, board minutes, shareholder minutes, capability statement, and potentially other security clearance or other indicia that you are capable of performing that contract as if you were the original contractee, awardee under that particular contract. And so the government does have the right to deny the novation and that risk that the government denies the novation and the movement of the contracts from the transferee to uh, from the transferor to the transferee is why a lot of entities or a lot of companies when they buy businesses choose to go the equity route because you don't have to go through that process you don't have to incur the potential risk that the government denies your transaction and so all of that full circle to say the due diligence process and why we focus on it and is to underscore the fact that you will have to assume and acquire certain liabilities that you might not otherwise be used to in just a pure commercial context. Yeah, I think too, when you're doing an acquisition and you're dealing with trying to avoid novation, a lot of times people bend over backwards to avoid it by just buying the entire company like Dave was saying. And that, that can make a lot of sense in certain cases. But to kind of go back to the small business issue again, some of the programs don't allow a company to be owned indirectly by a non-qualified individual and maintain status. So even if you were going to buy a company and let's say you, you did find someone, you had a, this was your first entity in a brand new fund, there's no affiliation issues, you found someone who's socially and economically disadvantaged, you set up an 8A company, and that's going to be the company that's going to do the acquisition because you're comfortable with it. And you're going to buy a company and you're not going to merge it. You're just going to hold it as a subsidiary. Even if you could do that, the subsidiary entity, if it's 8A or woman-owned or serviceable vet, it would not qualify any longer, even if the buying entity is owned and controlled by a qualifying individual because it's indirect ownership of the subsidiaries through another entity. So that's just another example of the structuring of things and how you need to think about it before, before you're really that far down the road. I mean, we like to look at these things well before the LOI is even in place, because these are things from a high level strategic perspective as to whether or not these acquisitions are even worthwhile. Can you do the way the way you want to do it? Because coming from the commercial sphere where the answer most of the time is you can do whatever you want as long as the other party agrees to it, right? And then it's just walking through the tax questions or something like that. Whereas here in this highly regulated environment, the regulations often dictate the structure of the transaction. And then you try to, once you have that, then you try to say, okay, what are the tax implications of this? What are the corporate laws that go into this? Can we do it? And then you tweak it from there. But if you have the entire structure wrong from the get-go, because it doesn't work with the regulations, 
the whole, all of that effort you've gone through is wasted. And we might have to scrap the entire thing and go back to the beginning, which is obviously can be a very expensive endeavor. Yeah, that's right. And I think that getting ahead of those uh, pitfalls, those little footfalls, and trying to understand how the ultimate objective you have for this particular transaction can be accomplished in a compliant manner within the scope of the regulations and threading various different needles is something that we like to get ahead of and be a part of at the initial stages to make sure that your time, energy, and resources aren't wasted pursuing a target or pursuing an opportunity that you're just not going to be able to fully realize. So uh, another issue that a lot of these acquisitions that people can think about is they're trying to get into federal contracting, but they have no experience. And a lot of the contracts that are out there, the request for proposals, the solicitations the government puts out, they want people who have prior experience in federal contracting, kind of a catch-22. So what people often try to do is either buy a company, and if you buy it and merge into yourself, you're the successor in interest, that can work. You can take on all their prior past performance, and if hopefully it's good, and it's all put in this one system called the Contractor Performance Assessment Reporting System. CPARS. So that's something that's almost like Yelp, but for gov- for the government. All the government people put in their like reviews of all the contractors. The contractors can put in comments about it. And so that's something you can look at. And if you buy the whole company and you merge it, you can definitely take advantage of the past performance that's there because, again, you're the successor in interest. Whereas if you buy the company and you hold it as a subsidiary, there are other rules about that. It's, that then would not be your past performance, the acquirer. It would be affiliate past performance. That can be restricted on an RFP by RFP basis by the government contracting officer who's soliciting the work. They can say, well, I'm going to limit this, and I don't know if I want to allow any affiliate. I want some connection to the, the prime contractor that's bidding, something like that. They could put some rules in there. It could be protested. You could argue about it. But if you don't want to go through that whole process, You need to understand that there could be restrictions on that. Similarly, a lot of companies try to go out and buy contracts. I see it all the time where a commercial company will be sitting there and they'll say, hey, I want to get into the federal market. I have no interest in buying an entire company. There's too much risk and liability. What I'm going to do is I've heard that there's these these big contracts and there's all these different acronyms, OASIS, STARS-3, CISP-4, Polaris all these funny names that are out there that the government uses for these major, major, huge 50 billion, multi-multi-billion dollar acquisition vehicles that say tens, hundreds of contractors are all a part of. But you need to get on that contract to have a chance at winning orders off of that big master contract. So sometimes people will say, well, I know this guy who's done a ton of past performance. They They worked on uh, this one, say, Alliant is another one. They worked on this Alliant contract for 10 years. It's going to end in six months, and they're willing to sell me the contract. They've got no work on it. They're willing to sell me this contract for $1,000, and I'll just take it and take all that past performance, and then that'll make me um, a viable bidder because I can use all that experience in the future. That's not how it works. If you buy an empty contract with nothing there, you're going to have all kinds of issues with innovations. But in addition to that, you're also going to have problems dealing with the past performance. Because 
you don't just get past performance by acquiring an empty contract that people might have worked on a year ago or six months ago or five years ago. Who knows? You actually have to have to have gotten something that has a nexus to that experience. And that's why if you really want past performance, the only way to do it cleanly is to acquire the entire business and then either merge it into yourself or in some cases you can hold it as, as an affiliate. But that's another thing when people miss misstate or they don't understand when they're buying in and then later find out, oh, maybe I can't use this past performance. Well, that that's the reason I paid $5 billion for this. I, I thought I was going to get all this experience and not understanding that it doesn't work that way. So just another issue. All right, I don't Thanks. I, and I think, I, I, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that, you know, for an outro, you know, something to the extent of undertaking a material transaction and entering into the government contracting space through an acquisition is certainly something that has been very successful for a lot of businesses historically, um, provided that your entree into the market is done in a prudent manner with a with a firm understanding of the regulatory landscape that you're entering into and understanding what the target's position in that ecosystem is and the liabilities and risks that you'll be assuming by by acquiring that entity. And all of these things that we've discussed really help make an informed decision about how to grow your company and how to enter that market and diversify your portfolio. And those are just some of the things that we see are the material differences that you may not have encountered before. All right, well, thanks everybody for joining us today on this uh, session on preparing and executing transactions with government contractors. And take a listen to the rest of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. There's a whole bunch of good information. Some of the things we just touched on are, are elaborated on in some of the other series. So please take a listen to those. And if you have any questions, you know where to find us. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is a Polero Maza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.